0: Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. So if you need extra coffee or donuts or whatever, you know, help yourself. Uh, A couple of things for you to think about. Uh, I think this week, uh, this physical plant will be wrapped in what I am calling the cocoon of construction. Everybody with me? So here's what happens when you wait 16 years to put a project together. Things happen very quickly once you kind of get there. So uh, this week they will come and put a lovely construction fence around this entire property. So next Sunday when you arrive... You must look at it like the cocoon of construction giving birth to a beautiful butterfly eventually. Amen? So a couple of things. Probably through Easter you'll have to go through a gate to get to the front entrance over there and the donuts will put them there to motivate you to go ahead (laughs) and come through. But probably post-Easter you'll have to enter from this side of the building. So the donuts then are going to move over here (laughs) as well as the bathrooms. So there'll be some temporary restrooms that will actually be much nicer than the ones we have now. <laughs> no, not those sort of, you know, awkward outhouse types, but the nicer ones. And, uh, and just as a reminder, it means that we'll just be a little bit different on crowd management, be patient, go ahead and bring things in if you need to. That also means that the parking lot has gone away. If you need assistance parking, we have a lot of space. Uh, About 105 parking places over at the school that's just a half block away. Kind of up this side around the curve. You can't miss it. And then if you need assistance getting here, please call the office. We'll get your phone number. You text us. We'll come pick you up and we'll drive you to the front door. Fair enough? Don't want anybody saying, I can't go to church because I have to walk a half a block. We know some of you actually need help and that's okay. We're gonna do our best to get some street parking close, but you just know you can call us, we'll connect with you, we'll have somebody pick you up and bring you right to the door. So uh, just be prepared. We've talked about this. Uh, There's gonna be some give and take in this process. I do wanna kind of give you an update. You have now committed a little, well, $3.45 million towards this project. Yeah, that's awesome. And almost 25% of that is in cash, which means we just are already 25% on the way to paying for this project, not just having commitments for it. And we believe God's going to just continue to allow you to bring those pledges in, and we'll have other annual commitments that come along. And we're not going to just meet our goal, we're going to exceed it. And so uh, just hang on, it's going to go fast. (laughs) And we're going to be patient here for a few months, we'll still be in this room for a, a few months, and then we'll have to be out for a few weeks, but we don't know all the details of that yet. So will you be tough? Will you, will you put on the, you know, wear your boots, whatever you got to do to get here, but uh, let's not have a post-COVID construction lull. Amen? Amen? All right, thank you. Good. Well, I shared with you last week about the revelation of the Scripture and the fact that it is a book that reveals, and what it is revealing is the story of God and the love of God for people, It's a story, in fact, if you wanted to call yourself a a systematic theology, you want to write a book on systematic theology, very often systematic theologies are called God, man, and salvation. God, human beings, and how they get together. Uh, And so the story in Revelation is that story. And so what we find as the narrative unfolds is that while we get Revelation in the names of God and in the narrative of God and in the law of God and through the prophets of God and through the judges and through the kings, while all of that is happening... We have the ultimate fulfillment of who God is in Jesus Christ, in whom the entire Godhead dwells bodily. And the, and the, the writers are so, they're so uh, gifted in how they are speaking it. When John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. He's using a word, logos. And that word, to the ancient Greeks, meant the divine force at the center of the universe that holds all things together. (laughs) And so John just takes that word and he says, The divine force at the center of the universe that holds all things together was tabernacled in human flesh and dwelt among us. The fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. He goes on later in chapter 1 to say, "And And the fullness of who God is. Everything about Him was revealed. The, uh, Paul tells us that you know, it is the full revelation. So, so we get this idea that if you get confused at any point along the way, take a look at Jesus and emulate what Jesus does. That's why we're called Christians. We are Christ-like. We are followers. If anyone wants to meet my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You don't need to be confused. Just put your feet where I've been, do what I do, say what I say, go where I go, behave as, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the whole package. That's the ultimate revelation. So then Jesus is correcting things that have been spoken or understood incorrectly. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. It's, it's this indicator. Truly I tell you. <laughs> That's the other phrase. When we, when we get a truly I tell you, he's saying Where, wherever, whatever you understood before, Pay attention to this. So that revelation thing is happening in these stories. Everybody doing okay? Good energy. Hopefully everybody's good online, and we're got it's all good. And you know, it's uh, the early service is interesting because you know those folks are really on the cutting edge. You know, they they are the ones who got up you know more a little earlier than even you. They didn't wake up naturally. It was dark when they woke up. And sometimes, you know, I'm I'm uh, I have a lack of feedback from the crowd when I arrive here. And so I'm hoping that you are going to feedback and have energy. Amen. Right. Oh, thank you. Good. That's good. That's helpful. That's helpful. <laughs> I like it. So let's think for just a minute about the garden. The revelation uh, of the whole story begins in a garden. And it's not just any garden. It's the garden. And the garden represents wholeness, and it represents fullness, and it represents completeness. It's everything you ever wanted, ever in your whole life, all in one place. It is the Garden of Eden. It is paradise. And in that, there's several things for us to kind of highlight. It is a place where people wake up in the morning, I'm guessing after a whole night's sleep, because in paradise, people are able to sleep all night older people help the younger people and it's a place where you wake up in the morning and you don't get up and you don't go cook and you don't go clean and you don't go work the fields and you don't go to the grocery store it's a place where the physical needs of human beings are provided for you just get up and you pick the fruit and you have your breakfast And your physical needs are completely met with no striving, no stress, no issues, no problems. Probably wasn't a bacon tree in the garden. But I suppose if you never developed a taste for it, you didn't miss it. All of the physical needs have been met. There is a fulfillment in that. But it wasn't just the physical needs that were getting met. We're told of what is portrayed to us in the garden is there's also the relational needs that are being met. There's a fulfillment of human relationship and connection. There's a fulfillment in that of emotional health. People feel fully integrated as human beings. Their brains are not racing around with thoughts that are agonizing or torturing them. This is a peaceful place up here. The thoughts, the emotions... All of those need fully integrated human beings functioning without trauma or dysfunction or brokenness. It's not only the physical needs, but it's the emotional, mental, relational needs are being completely fulfilled. And then add and layer over the top of that the fact that here in this garden, the the garden, there is a relationship that consists and, and exists consistently between God and human beings. There's no mystery. There's no difficulty. There's no trying to read the tea leaves. There's no trying to get a word. They walk in the garden with God and converse together anytime they want. There's no shame. There's no regret. There's no selfishness. This is how the story begins. This is how we begin to see the garden. And we have now this this archetype, this This motif of the garden that sort of is going to exist through the story of Scripture. It becomes very powerful and vivid when we get to the life of Jesus. It seems that Jesus is constantly getting away to a garden. He's always trying to get away to commune with the Father. He's going to a solitary place. He's going to a quiet place. He's going to some space where He can spend quality time Alone with God, where His emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, relational communion with God needs are being fulfilled and met. Amen? See it? See how it works? That becomes very powerfully vivid in the Passion Week. The garden begins to play this prominent role as we move back. So we've got this creation story of the garden. And now in the fulfillment of the revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ, in these moments of passion, when the, when the entire trajectory of the story is reaching its climax with the death and resurrection of Jesus, where do we find Jesus? He goes to the garden to pray. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. He's agonizing. This is the space he enters into to plead with the Father for a different way forward. And this is the place where he surrenders his will to God. This motif isn't there by accident. It exists for a reason. It's here in the garden that we see the final moments unfolding. The garden is the place where the arrest takes place. It's like the world invades the garden. It's like the chaos and the selfishness and the politics and the dysfunction makes its way into the garden. It's destroying the peace of the garden. It's, it's dismantling what God intended for human beings to experience and to have. And Jesus is taken out of the garden and he is pushed into the experience of the passion, the trial, the beating. And then ultimately, the journey to the cross. But the story doesn't end there. Early in the morning, on the first day of the week, Mary goes to the garden. She goes to the garden. But this garden has something that none of the gardens ever had before. This garden features life conquering death. This garden is a garden of restoration. It is reminiscing and pointing back to the garden where we had complete communion with God. In fact, the removal from the Garden of Gethsemane, the events of the crucifixion and resurrection now have restored the way back to relationship with God. Now we can really be back in the garden. Now, the gospel writers know that even though the garden has been restored, and it now features this reality, that death has been overcome, that the dysfunction has been corrected, that the way forward is for healing for human beings, both relationally, internally, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, that we are not all there yet. Amen. Amen. That there's still a lot of things that need to come together before we experience the fullness of this garden. Paul speaks about it this way. Everybody with me? It's a big theological picture. Just want you to know that the gospel writers are seeing it this way. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all, who hopes for what they already have. In that moment of resurrection, as death is conquered, as as the restoration of relationship with God is restored to its fullness, where we don't now have to go through the priest and the sacrificial system, but now the beauty and the paradise of the garden is getting put back together, it doesn't mean that everything's still working okay. There's going to be some other things that are going to take place. But remember that the pain you're going through is the pain of childbirth. There is a product at the end of the pain. So don't get preoccupied with the pain because it isn't about the pain. It's about the birth. And you're a part of it. Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians, Though outwardly we are wasting away. Again, I just think anytime I quote that scripture, it should get a rousing amen. (laughs) Though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, because we're smart and we understand the trajectory of the story, we fix our eyes not on what is seen because what is seen is temporary, but on what is unseen because what is unseen is eternal. Now, if we just stopped and we said right now, if we just played on this one phrase, our light and momentary troubles... I would guess that most of us didn't walk in here today thinking, Oh, <laughs> I'm going to get in touch with reality today, and I'm going to put my light and momentary troubles in their proper context. <laughs> Amen? And yet at some level, it's what the gospel writers most want us to understand. Don't, don't get preoccupied. Don't get overwhelmed. In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And when you are caught in your weakness, know this, even when you do not know how to pray, the Spirit will intercede. will pray to the Father on your behalf. I understand the anguish. I understand the loss of perspective. I understand the loss of wisdom. I understand being completely swept away by emotions. I understand being completely swept away by our own thoughts. Don't worry. The Spirit will intercede according to the will of the Father and in all things God is working for your good. If we could settle into that. That the Goddard has been restored, but it hasn't all gotten fixed yet. It's not all done yet. Remember when you used to think that if you just get through this next phase of life, everything will get easier? You guys remember that? You know, when I just get through school, I don't like to go to school every day. One day I'll be free, and I'll just do whatever I want. I'll watch cartoons all day and eat Oreos. It'll be great. And then by the time you're able to do that, you don't like cartoons, and you can't afford to eat Oreos. Amen? You think, wouldn't it fun when I was a little kid, I could eat anything I want never gain weight? I wish I could be a little kid again, have no responsibility, not have to do anything. We do this at every phase of our life. We're doing it right now. I just can't wait till this is solved. I can't wait till this is fixed. I can't wait till the next thing's done. We've lived long enough to know this. We do not always have the same problems, but we always have problems, which tells us that our problems are temporary, and we probably don't need to take them quite as seriously as we take them, and that is up to and including death. Because in this garden, life conquers death. Life conquers death. Sometimes we should ask ourselves uh, the health of going with the crowd and what that looks like. Luke is writing his gospel in such a way that, that he's constructing for us an image of the crowd, and the crowds come and wave. And, and Luke is one of the, the most you know, dynamic of the writers in the way that he uses the stories. So, for example, Luke is the person, the writer, who is constantly giving us stories within stories. So, Luke will begin to tell a story of Jesus, and then he'll interrupt the story, and he'll insert a story in the middle, and then he'll finish up the story that he was telling in the first place. And what happens then when you read his gospel is you get a pace, you get an energy, you get an urgency. Something's always happening. Something's in a row. Okay, okay, we're over there. Okay, well, let's get back to the story. It's over here. And so he has this intentionality to take you through the story in sort of a breathtaking kind of pace. That shows up in a very unique way as he approaches the story of the passion. He's going to create some waves of the crowd that sort of make their way to the cross and have something to say and then fall back and another person comes and another group. He's going to kind of create that. And it causes us to kind of stop and think for a minute just about the crowd and about what the crowd might look like and about what it might mean. Here's a good quote for you. The one who follows the crowd will usually get no further than the crowd. The one who walks alone is likely to find himself in places no one has ever been before. Albert Einstein. It's better to walk alone than with a crowd going in the wrong direction. Gandhi. <laughs> Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. Mark Twain. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus Christ. I just think that's a, that's a chunk of wisdom. If you find yourself siding with the crowd, going with the flow, it is a good time to pause and reflect. It's a good time to slow down. And Luke now is creating this story. I'm going to read it to you, and I want you to watch for the way he constructs this, which is very careful. Luke twenty three thirty two. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a notice written above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung on the tree hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're being punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man's done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So a couple of things that Luke is doing. First of all, Luke tells us as he sets the scene that Jesus is being crucified between two criminals. Now, the other gospel writers will tell us this information at the end of the story. It's a postscript. It's something they mention later on. But Luke wants you to see it at the beginning because he's setting up the scene for you. This is what is going on. The crowd has created this space where the perfect Son of God is being nailed to a cross between two thieves. He wants us to get the mockery of it. He wants us to get to the shame of it. And now... In short order, the waves of folks begin to move forward towards the cross. First, we find out it's the leaders of the synagogue. It's the, it's the rulers who are off in the side saying, and the words are very important, let him save himself. If you're really the Messiah, the chosen one, then come down from the cross. That's the mood of the crowd. It's the mood of the movement. It's what's happening with the culture. It's what's going on around them. They, they, they've taken him and marked him as Worthless! They've marked him as a person that deserves to be crucified between two thieves. And now the leaders of the religious group are sneering at him and throwing his own proclamations back at him. Immediately they fade from view and the soldiers take center stage. They are gambling for his clothes. Look at this person, the king of the Jews, they say. Luke now calls our attention to the superscription over the cross. It's what they're quoting. It's what the Roman soldiers, but he now calls it out. It's not just the crowd that's making fun of him. Even even the scene itself, even the fact that written right there on the cross, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Even the superscription mocks the person of Jesus. And now the thief on the cross Joins in the mockery. You say you can save yourself, save us too. And Luke has created this scene and he's allowed these waves to come in order because now the centerpiece of what he wants to tell us is moved forward. But the other thief said, don't you fear God? We're being punished justly. We're getting what we deserve, but this man is innocent. Jesus, remember me. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Just a few things to observe from the scene that is so powerfully created for us. Number one, it demonstrates a humility before God. I love this moment, this scene, the crowd, everything that's happening. And you hear this confession, you hear this question Do you not fear God? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. Do you not fear God? Do you have no greater accountability than your own heart, mind, spirit, brain? Do you fear God? Is there any greater purpose or cause or accountability in your journey in your life? Is there a humility that said, I am not the top of the food chain. I am not the be-all to end-all. My opinion is not the dominating right opinion all the time. One, One little amen in the corner. Thank you, Michael. Sometimes when I'm kind of helping people manage conflict, I like to ask this question. Who's the patient? Who are we going to treat as we're dealing with this conflict issue? Because this is what I find when people come and they're having conflict. This is what they think. We're here because this person really needs help. This is the patient. Let me introduce you to the patient. This is them. they got all kinds of issues. I'm hoping you can help them. I've given up. I can't help them anymore. And then you can turn to that person. They'll go, you're looking at the patient right there. (laughs) I've done everything I know to do. Maybe you can breathe some life into this thing. And so when people are in conflict, I always have to ask, who's the patient? Because the truth is, it's neither of those people, or if it's four people, or if it's eight people, those are not the people that are the patient. The patient is the relationship. And because the relationship is the patient, it means that everyone will have to make sacrifices for the health of the patient. They'll have to get unselfish. They'll have to sacrifice and compromise. They'll have to let go of some things. This is the reality of how it works. And I think in our own lives, we we tend to think we are the patient. We're the patient. God, help me. I'm the patient. I need to be better. No. No. Righteousness is the patient. Goodness is the patient. Humility is the patient. We're preserving a greater good. It's not just about me. It's not what suits me best. Isn't that what we learned in the garden? Jesus saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, I'm not the patient. Your will, your righteousness, your plan, that's the patient. That's who we're taking care of. And it'll take sacrifice on all of our parts to serve that greater good. And it happens every day. And if we forget this, if we do not live in this humility... That humbles ourselves before the greater good of God. We will we will mess this up. So it's a great question that the thieves have. Do you not fear God? <laughs> Do you not fear God? Because it changes even these moments on the cross. Do you not fear God? Humility matters. Number two. He said, since you're under the same sentence, we're being punished justly for getting what we're getting, what our deeds deserve. It turns out that number two, there's an acceptance of responsibility. That this thief on the cross, that the path forward for him is an acknowledgement, a humility about who God is and who he is. But then an acceptance of responsibility. This is the act of repentance. Yeah, you know, I could blame a lot of things. I could look at a lot of other things. But the truth is, I got a lot of responsibility in this. I don't know if you've ever studied worm theology. Anybody ever done a quick study on worm theology? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Which is interesting. We've woven a worm theology into our Judeo Christian tradition, which is not present in the Bible. You are children of the living God. You're children of the living God. I love this Tony Campolo story. He tells, these, when he was in seminary, he is asked by one of the professors to pray. And so he bows his head and he says, God, you know we are worthless. And the professor says, Stop. Mr. Campolo, you are not worthless. You are unworthy. You may continue. <laughs> but I think sometimes we, in this act of accepting responsibility, there's a balance here between accepting responsibility and being self-annihilating, between accepting responsibility and becoming shameful, between accepting responsibility and and, and looking at ourselves as worthless, you are not worthless. Unworthy, but children of the living God. And when we stop and go, you know, I've blamed a lot of things in my journey, but to be a grown-up, I not only have to accept responsibility, I have to repent. I have to turn and go in a new direction. And the thief in this moment, in this acknowledgement, is saying, listen, I accept. I name you God, and I accept responsibility. And then he extends an invitation. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I just think it's so important to remember that Jesus responds to an invitation on our part. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if he would just overwhelm us? Just, you know, I mean, not us, but the people we pray for. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door, I'll come in. And we'll dine together. We'll, we'll celebrate communion together. I wonder how often we are journeying in our light and temporary troubles. Not making light of them, you understand. Just saying. When Jesus' absence is due to a lack of invitation... That we didn't slow down, and we didn't invite him into that space with us. We didn't ask him. This invitation part matters. That, that story on resurrection morning when the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus are walking, and they don't recognize Jesus, and he's speaking with them and talking with them, and they come to their house, and they start to go into their house, and Jesus goes on. <laughs> and then they say, hey, you want to have breakfast? And Jesus says, sure. And he comes in, and they say, would you say the blessing and break the bread? And as he stands before them and breaks the bread, their eyes are open, and they recognize him. But he wasn't coming without an invitation. They would have missed the whole thing. <laughs> they would have gone and go, who's that weird guy we walked with on the road? You know, he knew a lot of stuff. I wonder what he does for a living. But they invited him in. And at the moment of the breaking of the bread, they see who he is. They become a part of God's great story at that moment of invitation. Finally, the last thing is this. He is restored. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Guess what that word paradise literally means? A garden. In fact, it's a Persian word the etymology of this word so we get, we have these things in greek called participles and participles are story words and they're big explosive words that appear on a page but they carry with them an entire story and background and this is one of them today you will be with me in the king's garden it's a literal transliteration of a persian word that means a chosen one of the king that is allowed to enter the king's garden at any time that's what it means Today you will be with me in the king's garden where you can, you can walk with me and talk with me and be with me and find the deepest needs of your physical, relational, spiritual, mental, emotional needs met. We'll be one together. Communion, freedom, peace, the restoration of the, the garden, born again, and oh, by the way, that's where you and I are headed. That's where you and I, as we humble ourselves and repent and give invitation to Jesus, that's where we're headed. That's the promise. That's the optimism. In all things, I'm working for your good. I wonder how many of us really connect with that. That's how we think every day. That's the invitation that's been extended. See, Austin Miles in 1912 tells a story. Uh, He was a photographer by trade and decided that he would get into songwriting, and so he had written a few songs. But on this day, he was actually developing photographs in his dark room, and he decided before he began that he would read one of his favorite passages, which was John twenty, one through 18, the resurrection story in John's gospel, where It's that powerful, in fact, we're going to worship around it on Easter Sunday. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and finds the stone rolled away. She runs and gets Peter and John. They have a foot race to the tomb, and then they look in and believe, and then they run off, and now Mary's left alone in the garden, sobbing, and Jesus appears to her. And Miles says that in that moment, he, he doesn't know if he had a vision or a dream or exactly what happened, but... But the words just came to him, and he began to write, I go to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. I've heard that song my whole life. I did not know until doing research for this that it was about the garden, about the garden. I thought it was just about somebody in a garden. I thought just somebody got out, and I'm going to the garden. I'm going to have my devotional time. It made me feel guilty because I don't go to the garden. Have my devotional time. I didn't know that the reflections were about this moment in this garden and how powerfully appropriate it is. The story begins in the garden, the garden. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Let's pray. God. Perhaps as we close and sing the powerful words of this song together and reflect on the deeper meaning, perhaps somewhere in there, there are folks today that need to come aside to the garden. They need to acknowledge that we see you and we reverence you and we honor you. We believe you're in charge of us, you're in charge of the world, you're in charge of our loved ones. We can't navigate everything all the time, but we try, we want to. And so in acknowledging your Lordship, we, we give you back the reins, not only to our circumstances and our lives and our health, but our physical needs, our relationships, our mental capacity, our emotional strength. We acknowledge that you're God, And we're your children. And we're seeking you and seeking your way and seeking your will. We're not asking you to bless our stuff. We're asking you to help us to fit into your will and your way. And we take responsibility for our own actions. Not in a self-annihilating way, but simply acknowledging that some of our issues and some of our problems are our own making. And then we invite you to forgive us. Move into this space with us. Go with us. Let us be with you in the garden. Come with us in our places of hurt and need and loneliness and fear and dysfunction. And remind us that this garden is unique. It's a garden where death and sickness and sadness and brokenness and shame and dysfunction have been overcome. It's a restoration of all that is good and holy and pure. A place where we can be whole again. Not only whole in ourselves, but whole in you. Communion restored. Open, loving, listening, connected, communion. We invite you. Hear our responses, Lord. Deepen our hearts and minds as we sing and respond together. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said together. Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.